All right. One thing I forgot to mention, if you are planning to attend the Tell the World um, seminar next week, it would help those that are setting it up to know that you're coming. So when if you, if you plan to attend, go to okadventist.org. Just scroll down a little bit, and you'll see the events calendar. Click on the Tell the World event, and then you can register there just so that they know that you're coming. All right. So today, we begin a new three-part sermon series, and we'll be looking at the themes of context, covenant, and conversion, yet they will all be under the banner of changes, changes. I truly believe that God's word changes things. God's word changes things. When God speaks, new realities come into existence. God spoke the universe and everything in it into existence. God's word holds power. And it's a power that we all need. So we'll spend the next three weeks looking at how God is constantly working to change our hearts, our minds, and our worldviews. He's, he's creating in us all a new thing. But before we uncover exactly what that new thing is, we've got to lay a foundation. And this is why today we'll be focusing on context, context. Now, I generally aim um, to keep each sermon in a series as much as a standalone as possible, but sometimes that's just a bit difficult. So this series is really meant to be taken as a whole. And so please, if you know that you aren't gonna be here next week or the week after, just go ahead and, and plan ahead that you're going to hop onto YouTube and go to our Edmund Adventist page and uh, catch up on the sermons after I've preached them. Today's sermon is more of a teaching sermon. And though I'm confident that you will find a blessing here today, an even greater blessing will come from being able to see all three messages together and the full picture that they paint. Our scripture reading today was taken from the book of Galatians, and it reads, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. I've mentioned numerous times how the New Testament is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. And while I believe that there is more than enough in the New Testament to flesh out the plan of salvation and to give us each gospel assurance, there is an extra layer of richness that comes from understanding the Old Testament context. Some of you may know what Paul is speaking about here. But for the sake of just making sure that we're all on, on the same page, we're just we're gonna act as if some of you are looking at this verse right now and you're asking, what promise, what seed is Paul talking about here? Paul is not just um, making this up. He's not just coming, uh, creating this, this brand new thing in his mind. He's pulling it from his understanding of the Old Testament. 
And he's actually making reference to a promise that was given all the way back in the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God. They have eaten from the forbidden tree and opened the gate for sin to pour into every aspect of this world like a flood. It's a sad scene. And God delivers some bad news, but there's still hope. Hope, it's not lost, because God also delivers good news, and that good news comes in the form of a promise. Genesis 3.15, God speaking here, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is letting the enemy know that he will not always be in control. His days are numbered. His power and his reign have limits. A seed is promised. A savior who will eventually come and crush the head of the enemy, thus extinguishing his power. This promise is known as the Edenic Covenant. And we've learned previously that one of God's favorite ways of showing his love and offering encouragement to his children is by making covenants with them. And if you want a more in-depth view into all of the Old Testament covenants that God made, then hop onto our Edmund Adventist YouTube page and search for the sermon back on August 20, 2022. It's simply entitled, Covenants Old and New. But for the sake of time, we're just going to go ahead and look at one of the covenants that God made, probably the most well-known, the most famous one within Christian circles, and that was the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Verses one through three, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So essentially, and and I'm, I'm calling on your memory here. I want you to help me out. Essentially, what God is promising to Abraham is two things. Does anybody remember what those two things are? I'll give you a hint. The first one is land and I heard it. I heard it. Whoever said that, say it louder. Descendants, yes, land and descendants. That is what God is promising here. And through a a godly people living in a goodly land and expanding out in connection with God, they would then bless the entire world, every nation in the world. Sometimes we, we look and say, why does God just love the Hebrew people so much? Does he care about everyone else? Yes, he does. He does. The whole point of this was so the blessing could go to everyone. And we'll spend some more time next week focusing in on that. But generally, when we talk about God's covenants, we do. We, we tie them to the children of Israel. Yet, Israel didn't exist here in Genesis 12. But if you go forward 20 chapters to Genesis 32, we come to the first mention of this name Israel. 
And he said, God speaking here, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Thus, the name Israel was at first a name of heavenly origin that God applied to Jacob alone. And it represented his spiritual victory over sin through wrestling in prayer and claiming God's abundant grace. Jacob went on, though, to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons eventually moved to Egypt. And the descendants of these sons eventually multiplied and multiplied into 12 tribes. And then they were forced into slavery in Egypt until the time of Moses. So then at this time, God came and he told, Mo, told Pharaoh through Moses, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now notice the name Israel is now been expanded to not just be about Jacob, but also to include Jacob's descendants. Therefore, the name Israel that was first applied to a victorious man was then applied to his descendants, his offspring, his children. About 800 BC, the Lord spoke through the prophet Hosea, saying, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Yeah, by this time, the nation of Israel had failed to live up to the spiritual meaning of its name. This verse in, in Hosea, it explodes with tremendous importance in the New Testament when it is then reapplied to Jesus by Matthew in his gospel. We'll spend a little time next week looking at how Matthew reveals even further that Christ's story actually repeats the history of the people of Israel point by point. But for now, we're just gonna keep laying some context. I've got two more verses to show how the New Testament believers saw Jesus as fulfilling the prophecies, fulfilling the covenants concerning Israel. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 41.8. It says, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. And then Matthew takes this verse out of Isaiah and he applies it to Jesus. And then Paul He comes along and he does a similar thing in Galatians 3.16, which reads, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So repeatedly, over and over and over again, in the New Testament, statements that once applied to the nation of Israel are applied to Jesus Christ. The Messiah is now the seed. Therefore, Jesus is the very essence of what Israel was supposed to be. Jesus accomplished what the nation of Israel failed to do. Where they were weak, he was strong. Where they made a mess, he brought 
completion. Yet there's more. There's more. We must also remember that the name Israel, it not only referred to Jacob, it also referred to his descendants. Yes, who became the children or the nation of Israel as we generally refer to them as. And the same principle is seen in the New Testament. For example, the Lord spoke and he told the ancient Israelites in Exodus this, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. But then in the New Testament, Peter comes and he takes these words and he applies them to the church. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm speaking to you, dear friends, just, just in case you didn't pick that up. Thus, in the New Testament, the name Israel, it not only applies to Jesus Christ, but also to those who are born anew in Christ, his church. In other words, all true Christians are now God's spiritual Israel. So according to the New Testament, there are now two. There are two Israels. One group is composed of literal Israelites, according to the flesh, as Romans 9 puts it. The other group is spiritual Israel, composed of Jews and Gentiles who have accepted Jesus Christ and they believe in him. The New Testament teaches that not all are part of God's spiritual Israel who are of the literal nation of Israel. And I'll prove it. Romans 9, 6, it says this. But it is not the word of God that has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, just taking this verse at face value, it seems like a typo, right? It seems like a mistake. How can those who are Israel not be of Israel? It's because we have two different Israels. We have those that were born of the flesh, and then we have those that were born of the promise. We have literal Israel, and we have spiritual Israel. Paul then goes on to talk about children of the flesh, children of the promise, and so those children of the flesh are the natural descendants of Abraham. Yet it is the children of the promise that are counted as the true seed. Today, any person, Jew or Gentile can become part of this spiritual nation of Israel through faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody's being left out. Nobody's being left on the sidelines here. And again, don't believe me? Let's look at something interesting that Jesus himself said. Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Now, Jesus' declaration here would have angered and stunned the listening crowd. The idea of Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob sitting and eating with Gentiles was heresy. It was unheard of. It was considered by Jews to be sinful. Yet that's what Jesus said. This is also an underlying theme in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The Jews feasted on the scriptures but they didn't share it with the Gentiles who were starving for the truth, the bread of life. They would have just taken crumbs. And because of this, the nation of Israel, who did not hold up their end of the bargain, who did not do their job of being the blessing to the entire world, of sharing this good news, they were cast aside. And a new spiritual Israel was erected where all were welcome to come and join. Yes, even those Jews that were cast aside. They could come back and, as Paul puts it, be grafted back in. And here's where some of you may be wondering, what is going on? Maybe you're saying, but I thought that end-time prophecy had to be fulfilled with the literal state of Israel and the rebuilding of a third temple. That's what I've heard. And yes, I know that is a very common consensus within most evangelical and charismatic Christian circles, but just because many believe something, that doesn't necessarily make it right. In my opinion, those who are caught up in this view have been misguided by two things, politics and futurism. They have allowed their worldly politics to paint a worldview that simply isn't consistent with Scripture. They've taken hold of a way of interpreting prophecy that leads to bogus and conspiratorial results. And they've taken hold to a way of interpreting prophecy that leads nowhere. This, this theology, it's known as futurism, and it's closely tied with something else you might have heard about called dispensationalism. And there are many, many, many contemporary writers and speakers, bestsellers, so-called self-professed Christian Zionists who have written on this topic of the supposed rebuilding of the Third Temple. And the list includes heavy hitters, such as Tim LaHaye, Thomas Ice, Randall Price, Grant Jeffrey, Hal Lindsey, Dave Hunt, and John Hagee. Their combined published book sales have reached almost 100 million, printed in over 50 different languages. So it's no wonder that these sorts of beliefs are so ingrained within the Christian church. Oftentimes, when somebody believes this and you ask them about, show me from the Bible, show me where, tell me why, they don't know. They, they just heard it their entire lives. I find it odd, though, that most of the speculation and hopes for a rebuilt third temple come from one vague, ethereal verse in 2 Thessalonians dealing with the Antichrist power. And I could probably spend three whole sermons breaking this down, but instead I'm hoping that I've at least laid out enough groundwork, laid out enough evidence to show you that when God speaks of Israel in the New Testament, he is not speaking about the literal state of Israel that exists in the Middle East, but instead he is speaking about a worldwide movement called spiritual Israel that is made up of people from every nation, kindred, and tongue. 
As the title of this sermon states, there are some major changes that God makes between the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, David gave birth to Solomon, who then built the earthly temple. But in the New Testament, Jesus is called the true son of David. His body was broken, his blood was spilled, and that blood became the seed that gave birth to what we now know as the modern-day church, Christianity. So yes, history shows that Solomon was the son of David and that he built a physical temple, but the New Testament says that Jesus was the true son of David who was to build a temple and a kingdom that would last forever. Jesus clearly taught that he had come to transfer the attention from a physical building of worship to something greater his body, the church. Plus, Jesus also prophesied against the Israel nation when he told them this in Matthew 23, 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. And the end of the Jewish sacrificial system came to an abrupt halt when Jesus died on the cross because it was at that moment when Jesus breathed his last breath that this happened. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Even before the cross, Jesus warned his disciples of the eventual and total destruction of the temple. Matthew 24, 1 and 2, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And if you're up on history, you know that that is exactly what happened when the city was ransacked in 70 AD. After the veil of the temple ripped from top to bottom and the the early disciples were excommunicated, we find an overwhelming sense of indifference among the early believers who, mind you, were mostly all Jews, but they showed indifference concerning what had happened to the Jewish temple. You see, they knew that Jesus was the true Lamb of God and that the Jewish temple was designed to accommodate animal sacrifices. The New Testament writers simply looked at the temple as now being irrelevant. They recognized the establishment of a new spiritual temple and priesthood, a new spiritual Israel. In Ephesians 2, we find these words. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord and whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. And then again, in 2 Peter 2, we find you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I know that I can't convince you, but it's not my job. It's not my ability 
But I, I hope that what I presented here today, if, if it has left you feeling a little uncomfortable, if it's left you feeling a little bit confused, I encourage you to study this out for yourself. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring conviction. I can't do it. I'm just the messenger. And I hope I've at least given you enough to chew on if this is new information to you. I know a lot of you, this is, yes, I know this. But for some of you, maybe you're hearing this for the first time. And again, I also just want to mention our welcome table because we have a, a small tract that looks like this, and it's called Israel and Bible Prophecy. And just take one if you want to study this further. This, this covers some of the things that I didn't have the time to cover in this sermon. I realize that some will choose to keep their attention and focus on the Dome of the Rock looking at where is now a mosque and hoping and praying that one day it's going to be destroyed and a third temple is going to be erected there. But as for me, I'm choosing to keep my focus on Jesus and his church. Amen. The type of church where all, including Jews, are welcomed and invited to become a part of, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. I'm an heir according to the promise. You are an heir according to the promise. And anyone who accepts Jesus, no matter their background, gender, or nationality, can also become an heir according to the promise. Amen. Dear friends, God keeps his promises. God spoke all the promises and covenants into existence in the Old Testament, and Jesus came in the New Testament to change some things in the world. And one of the biggest things that I feel convicted of, one of the biggest things that I've come to accept is that Jesus changed what family means. Amen. Jesus changed what family means. And so now that we know that we are a part of the family of God, we have been grafted into this new family that is called spiritual Israel. We have entered into covenant with the creator God but now, what are we supposed to do with this information? What are we supposed to do with it? In order to see that more clearly, we have to spend some time drilling down into God's covenant and what his goals were in making it in the first place, and that's where we are going to turn our attention to for next week's sermon, part two, covenant. But for now, dear friends, fellow heirs, of the promise, and members of the new thing that Jesus is creating called spiritual Israel, I hope you would come to accept the changes that God brings and find hope in the changes that God still wants to make in your life and in mine. Amen. And before we have our closing prayer, I'm going to invite Brandon to come forward and to stand at the foot of the steps. He's our elder in charge for today. And after the benediction, you who wish can be dismissed. But if there's anybody here who has any special needs, any special requests, maybe you have a praise that you, you just can't hold it in anymore and you want to share it with somebody, we'd love to hear from you. And go with you to the throne of God in prayer with your praises or your petitions. Let us pray. Lord God, 
Change is hard. Change is difficult. It makes us uncomfortable. But Lord, you are the God of change. Lord, all we have known is a, a world full of sin and hatred and strife and suffering and pain and tears and death. But Lord, you are working to change that. You have been working to change that. As the Bible tells us, from the very foundation of the world, a plan was laid, a promise was given all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. And you kept your word as new promises were given, as new covenants were made. Lord, we as humans, we've failed in our part. We have not come through, but Lord, you have continued over and over to come through. So Lord, right now, we just admit our powerlessness. We admit our lack of ability, our lack of effort, our lack of follow through, but we are accepting your power on our behalf. We are accepting your spirit in our lives. We are accepting your invitation to become a part of this new family known as spiritual Israel. And Lord, May we not just come into the family and sit down and be happy with that, but Lord, may we, as we receive blessings from being a part of your family, then want to go and bring others in to share the good news with them. Lord, give us that opportunity. And Lord, as we've laid the context this week, I pray that you would continue to speak to us through this coming week and that you would be here with us next Sabbath as we look at your covenants, as we look at your promises, as we look at your plan, not just for the people of Israel, but for everybody in this world. We give ourselves to you now in the same way that Jesus gave himself to us. We ask it in his name. Amen and amen.